Thank you for tuning in to the WAM Podcast, where women empower women in business and manufacturing. Hello, everyone. This is Rosemary Coates in Silicon Valley. I'm your host for this edition of Women in Manufacturing Podcast. I'm the executive director of the Reshoring Institute, where we help companies bring back or expand their manufacturing in the U.S. And I also run a global supply chain consulting firm called Blue Silk Consulting, where we help clients with global supply chain projects and where I also do expert witness work. On these podcasts, we interview accomplished women in business and ask them to share their experiences with us. And we are always looking for insights from women leaders that we can all learn from. So today, I'm really, really excited to welcome my guest, Rachel Jones. Rachel is the Vice President of Energy and Resources Policy at the National Association of Manufacturers, or what we lovingly call the NAM. And Mrs. Jones oversees NAM's NAM's energy and environmental policy, and she has expertise on issues ranging from energy production and use to air and water quality, climate change, energy efficiency, and environmental regulations. And she is also an attorney and has been counsel to the U.S. House of Representatives. So welcome, Rachel. Well, thank you so much, Rosemary. I'm happy to be here. I want to start off with you telling us about your background and how you ended up in your VP position at the NAM. Sure. You know, it has been kind of a circuitous route. Like a lot of people, I actually started out with a totally different career and had no idea that I would end up in this position and talking to you here today. I used to uh, sort of started off my career working on ranches, predominantly in Wyoming, and in other parts of the West. And through those experiences, which in many ways appear to be, you know, a 180 different from what I'm doing today, there were different opportunities where I got to see sort of how on the ground realities were often totally divorced from regulations or laws or policies that were happening in DC or even sometimes at the state level. And so through some of those, sometimes it was good, sometimes it was bad, but it was always a, a real challenge to sort of see that disconnect between people in their daily lives trying to work things, make things, move things, and sometimes, you know, policymakers. And so once I really saw that disconnect and then the frustration that it would often lead to, so frustration both from a policymaker thinking that, you know, people on the ground were out of touch or vice versa, I said, you know what, instead of being frustrated by this disconnect, what can I do to help bridge that gap? And so I ended up going to law school, focusing on energy, environmental and resources policy. And through that, I never wanted to make partner at a big firm or something like that. I had the opportunity to go work in the Senate and then ultimately in the House before I came to the NAM to learn better how I could be a part of bridging that, what is often a gap between policymakers and the people on the ground around our country and what they are working to accomplish in their daily lives with their families and communities. 
Boy, we can really relate to that because I think most manufacturers feel that our politicians have no idea what we do. You know, so they come and visit a plant or they'll visit a site or something like that, but they have no real feel for how manufacturing actually happens and what the concerns and issues are. Yeah, I think that is 100% true. I didn't come into this space initially thinking I would focus on manufacturing by a couple stops. I ended up, you know, with more of a focus on manufacturing, but you really do see that disconnect and frustration. And, you know, I think it's sometimes funny, sometimes frustrating that, you know, people think of a lobbyist as such a dirty word, but we really are, you know, here to connect, to help policymakers, whether it's politicians or their staff or others, whether it's in D.C. or at the state and and sometimes even local level, it's my job to be able to connect them to the manufacturer, to help them understand what the challenges are that they face on the shop floor, whether that's workforce related, whether that's regulatory, whether that's, you know, tax and financial related, or, you know, really in the last year, there's been obviously a whole new challenge related to COVID and supply chains. And so connecting people and solving problems, it might sound like an oversimplification, but it's what we do at the NAM. And it's one of the reasons that, you know, I'm so proud to get to represent the people that we do. So to that end, sort of maybe so that folks have a a better understanding if they're not familiar with the National Association of Manufacturers and sort of who we are specifically. We're the largest manufacturing association in the U.S. and we represent around 14,000 small, large manufacturers in every industrial sector. So the variety there is really interesting. And then in all 50 states. So it's a big job, but it's a fun job. And it gives us a lot of opportunities also sort of as an additional piece here to connect different industrial sectors as well. So it's important and that we connect not just politicians and policymakers to manufacturers, but we also help connect manufacturers to manufacturers. And that's been an interesting role that I didn't necessarily think we were going to do. But this year has really heightened the importance of the role that we can play there. Yeah, so full disclosure, the Reshoring Institute is a member of NAM. We've been a member for six or seven years, and then I'm also on the Manufacturing Leadership Council, which is also affiliated with NAM. And the organization, I think, from my perspective, so you gave the inside perspective, from my perspective, you know, it's an aggregation of companies that come together to talk about certain issues. So, for example, When the tariffs were enacted, I'm on the Global Trade Committee, and we talked a lot about how it was affecting manufacturers and how some were absorbing costs and, you know, others were passing costs on to their customers and so forth. So there, you know, big policy issues like that where the manufacturers come together and talk about how certain policies like that are affecting their day-to-day operations for themselves, as well as how other companies are dealing with it. So it was really kind of a very fruitful sort of discussion and participation. And then I think that NAM goes, like you were saying, goes and lobbies 
presents, talks to, cajoles <laughs> legislators in the Congress um, about manufacturing issues. Yeah, that's exactly right. Actually, right before earlier this morning and very late last night, I have spent more hours than I'd like to admit on phone calls, text messages, trying to work with legislators in the House and in the Senate, Republicans and Democrats to come together on not only, you know, sort of a big omnibus package for funding the government, but working out deals on, you know, little pieces of legislation that might seem small in the scope of a big package that the government does, but can have tremendous impact for manufacturers. So I don't want to spill the beans on the deals that I think we're close to making, but it is really an interesting role that we play in sort of, I like the way you described it, there's the inside sort of forum conversation and sharing of ideas and best practices among our membership. And then there's the, that really empowers our then external voice out to policymakers. And then also, you know, it's very important, our communication back to members and communication back out to the public. Because more and more, as manufacturing has taken center stage here in the U.S., the, the public is very interested in what's happening and, you know, how we can continue to strengthen manufacturing in America. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think one of the things that's so obvious is, to me anyway, is that manufacturing people, manufacturing leaders as well as workers and so forth, they're doing their job every day, right? So they're worried about making stuff and getting it to the customer on time and negotiating prices and that sort of thing. And don't always have an opportunity to sort of look to Washington to understand what policies are there and how they might affect manufacturing. I mean, it's just a, you know, it's just a fact of life that manufacturers are manufacturing and they don't really you know, they're busy all day long doing their jobs. And so, you know, Washington is out there making policy or new laws and rules that are going to affect these people, but there's a disconnect there. They don't always know what each other is doing. You're exactly right, Rosemary. There certainly is that divide, and it can also sometimes turn manufacturers off in that they say, you know, I don't have time for politics. And right. I hear that from members all the time. And in response to that, you know, the NAM and the policy agenda of the NAM is very postpartisan. So we're not about politics. We're not about personality or process. We really are a postpartisan organization. And that's because that's what our members want. And so, you know, we advance ideas from across the political spectrum, you know, rooted in the values that make America an exceptional nation. And that's free enterprise, competitiveness, individual liberty and equal opportunity. I have to say, I used to travel back in the day, <laughs> pre-COVID, and I used to stand up in Washington pretty frequently and try to attend as many meetings as I could that were hosted by NAM, their Friday morning meeting on the international policy, I think. And we had invited, these were off the record meetings, and several times there were Republicans and there were Democrats, representatives or assistants to 
legislators that were developing ideas and policies and listening to what manufacturers had to say. And, you know, it was very striking to me that instead of being political, so, you know, there was no like Democrat and Republican fight, but even though, you know, a Republican legislator would show up, the issues were all sort of, like you said, postpartisan. I mean, it wasn't, we weren't fighting over politics. We were trying to understand the issues on behalf of manufacturers. So really a different perspective, one that was not so partisan as we see out here in the hinterlands. So yeah, it was this really interesting organization and you see legislation being developed that is nonpartisan and, and hopefully helpful to manufacturers. I'm really excited that that's the perspective you saw because that is really what we work for. And, you know, every association doesn't necessarily take that approach. Sometimes we're a bit of an outlier, frankly, in focusing on the policy instead of the politics. But I really believe firmly that it is, you know, the right thing to do. And frankly, it works. I think most people are (laughs) kind of tired of the politics these days. Yeah, I agree. I think people are weary, for sure. You know, I'm interested in learning more about how government policy affects uh, manufacturing in terms of energy policies. I know that's where you focus. So can you give us some examples of how energy policy development can be good or I guess sometimes bad for manufacturers that are in the energy sector? Yeah, absolutely. Let me start by saying, in my experience, energy policy that works for manufacturers is really about balance and about empowering manufacturers to continue to do the right thing. Manufacturing in America is more sustainable than ever, thanks in large part to really a revolution in how we produce, use, and recycle energy. Across the board, levels of virtually every major pollutant really have declined dramatically. But manufacturers need a stable, smart regulatory environment to be able to create jobs and fuel economic growth. And that stability, that balance are really key. And, you know, the NEM and its members believe that, you know, that balance is critical to continuous improvements. And over the past few years, I mean, we really have seen incredible success in working to achieve environmental protections, as well as, you know, continuing to focus on other manufacturing priorities that let you know, us continue to grow the economy. Specific examples in this space to kind of maybe drill down from that 30,000 level view. In thinking about the way that we have been pushing for smarter regulations in the courts, at agencies, with Congress, and frankly, like I said, with the press and, and the public, it's everything from, you know, how do you reduce greenhouse gas emissions in a smart way How do you still provide modern, reliable, and affordable power? Some of the things that we've seen, you know, just in the last few months, the modernization of NEPA permitting, that's something that, you know, many manufacturers don't think of immediately. But it really, this modernization creates more collaborative process that respects communities, but it mainly reduces litigation. And so what that does is, allow a manufacturer to be connected to a new energy resource or 
for roads and bridges to be improved much faster and more quickly. It might not be the very first thing you think of when you're thinking about making payroll, but these are all the things that are required for us to have a modern, efficient. It's the context and how you operate. So, you don't think about driving on a road or over a bridge to get to work. Well, maybe you're working from home these days, but you don't think about driving over a ridge or a bridge or a road, but yet that's got to be part of the policy to make manufacturing work. Right. right. That's exactly right. And and look, there's not any one solution on so many of these things. It really does take a thoughtful approach that says there's not one answer, let's figure out the right one. So for some manufacturers, it's really important that they are connected to what we traditionally call the grid. But for other manufacturers, they're deciding that maybe a microgrid is the right solution for them because of you know specific challenges or things that they're looking to deliver. Another manufacturer may say, hey, we want to produce our own energy because we have these opportunities. And so really, um, it's important to find tailored solutions to things and not try to solve sort of everything with one. That's really important because manufacturers come in all shapes and sizes, right? So big, big manufacturers might be able to do some big things. So I live pretty close to Google headquarters And when Google decides to do something in Mountain View, California, well, they're the 800-pound gorilla. So, you know, they can kind of make anything happen, including building roads and, you know, building out properties and that kind of thing. Small manufacturers may not have that opportunity. So they, you know, they need to be dependent on others to help them with legislation or to provide infrastructure that, you know, that's going to work for them as well. You know, you you also mentioned sustainability. You started off with talking about that, and I, I wanted to mention that for a minute because at the Reshoring Institute, when we're helping companies bring manufacturing back to the U.S., they're very often looking for a new facility or to build out some new component to what they're producing. And sustainability, I would say, in the past was not a high priority. But in companies that are reshoring, it has become one of the three or four very prominent ideas that permeate the selection process and how companies are approaching manufacturing. So, for example, if I have a client in upstate New York who makes paper products and they are building out a new section to their manufacturing plant and sustainability is front and center. So how do they recycle the water that they use and how do they recycle waste that comes off the production line and and so forth? Though, you know, the visibility to sustainability issues has become front and center for manufacturing, which is, you know, just another dimension of all the things that we've considered in the past. I think you are exactly right. You know, I would say two things that I would really highlight here as we're thinking about sustainability. One of the things that we did is we, like you, have seen more and more of a focus on sustainability. We actually joined with the Department of Energy to launch the Sustainability and Manufacturing Partnership, which allows manufacturers to collaborate with all of the tremendous experts at DOE in exploring emerging sustainability technologies 
addressing energy transitions and really shining a spotlight on how sustainability really is vital to manufacturing in America. And that's a really important one, especially for smaller manufacturers. And going back to your point about everyone is not the same and don't have the same resources, DOE is really stepping up in this partnership to make sure that we can provide some of those insights and opportunities to smaller folks and to translate some of the learnings that maybe a larger company has figured out or worked on. When it comes sort of, as you mentioned, to either expanding or frankly, when it comes to onshoring, which is really a focus of so many today, air and water permitting really are key to building infrastructure for modern, sustainable manufacturing. And I would say, you know, small reforms that have been made to the new source review and state water certification programs, those can really make a big difference between new opportunities here at home versus losing out to our global competitors. So having that framework in place is really something that I think we've made some good strides within the last few years and need to continue to focus on if we really want to make, you know, onshoring supply chains and expansion of existing things a viable, you know, possibility moving forward. So if a company, say one of our clients was developing a new site and sustainability was something they were interested in, both water and energy, where would they go to find out, you know, what the current ideas are, I guess, not necessarily legislation, but what are the ideas around sustainability that they should be considering? Do they come to the NAM or... You know, do they go to the DOE or, you know, how do they learn? So I think there's a couple of ways. Yes, absolutely. Coming to the NAM is a really great way. And there's several different opportunities there. There's obviously the partnership with DOE that I mentioned, and we can help them navigate that. And then there's also, I think one of the neatest things is that we have, as you kind of talked about before, this internal dialogue. So often one of the ways that a company gets started on this type of a sustainability journey is by coming to us and we can talk through sort of what are the elements you're looking at, what are the attributes of your company, what industry do you fit within, and finding, you know, other partner, if you will, manufacturers. Being able to learn from each other is one of the greatest ways that manufacturers can think through opportunities. And then similar to the idea of sort of finding someone who has taken a similar journey and learning from what works and doesn't work and challenges and unexpected, you know, both good things and bad things. We also have a lot of members who partner with each other. So someone may need a new widget to do this new process. We may have another company that can help them design that new widget, or they already sell it and they can work together. So there's a lot of opportunity for shared learning and partnership within the NAM, within some of our partners, like the Department of Energy. There's universities that, you know, I would connect folks with. And then, you know, there's also opportunities with sometimes different, even environmental organizations that we work with that, you know, we can help connect people to. I see a lot of 
manufacturers actually going to environmental groups and saying, hey, we want to do this better. How can we do this? Help us figure out a better process. And so that type of collaboration tends to lead to better outcomes than maybe an older paradigm of leave us alone and we'll just, you know, be more adversarial. That old paradigm I see sort of really changing and shifting into the more of a collaborative partnership type of a model that I described. Yeah, I agree. I see companies being more active and interested in policy development and in, in gaining knowledge and information than just sitting back and taking whatever Washington delivers. So <laughs> yeah, that's definitely interesting. So, you know, I have um, just one more question for you that I'm, it's kind of a personal thing, pet peeve for me. You know, I was surprised a, a while back to find out that America has no national industrial policy. You know, almost every other country has an industrial policy. For example, China's, you know, made in China 2025. We know that France is focused on supporting and developing their aerospace industry. Japan has had industrial policy since World War II. But Americans have resisted it because to have a national industrial policy of to pick winners and losers. So we have to support one industry over another and so forth. So we've resisted that for a while. But I think the pandemic has really pointed out that we have vulnerabilities in certain industries, such as pharmaceuticals and medical equipment and rare earth mining, and that we should support artificial intelligence development and so forth, and energy ideas as well. And things like rare earth mining are just so important to the long-term health of manufacturing. Do you see the U.S. developing any kind of industrial policy in the future? Do you think there's an appetite for it? I think you raise a really good point. I don't have a crystal ball. If I did, I would be a wealthy woman. We certainly are already connecting with the incoming administration, and we'll continue to work with them the way that we worked very collaboratively with the outgoing administration. I will say to your point sort of about COVID, I think you're right. It really did bring into focus for a lot of people some of the weaknesses that we have, some of the areas for growth and strengthening. Critical minerals is one that you mentioned that, you know, is certainly a passion of mine and one that we were working on before the pandemic. And now really, and it was so hard to get traction and it was so frustrating sometimes. And, you know, this year has been the first time that I think we've seen a renewed focus on supply chains. And, you know, there is more of an interest in thinking about comprehensive policies, you know, and that's encouraging, but we need to make sure that that continues. In response to COVID-19, as sort of you mentioned, we realized that there wasn't someone sort of with a comprehensive policy. And so we released actually our American Renewal Action Plan for that purpose, to guide policymakers on how to respond to this economic crisis, both in the near term and then looking into the mid and longer term, just to ensure that manufacturers can continue their essential role in America's response recovery and renewal, sort of that immediate midterm, long-term. And so, you know, some of the elements there, you know, during that response phase, 
you know, the ramping up production of PPE, that the country is, is ready and well supplied. Again, some of those weaknesses were, I think we all saw, and we worked to overcome. And it was clear that the government wasn't really prepared to figure that out. And so, you know, manufacturers stepped up and it took us, you know, asking the government for expanded testing, clear guidance on issues like face masks and temperature checks. Then in sort of the recovery phase, we really need policymakers to focus on the tools that will allow us to reopen and restart the economy when we're in recovery. And that's going to include, for example, strong liability protections. And then as we think about renewal, we have to set the stage for long-term growth. And that requires everything from increased liquidity, including things that we you know, have already had, but maybe expanding on the Paycheck Protection Program for small businesses. And we need a historic investment in our nation's infrastructure, robust workforce training, expanded trade, regulatory, you know, it just keeps going. All of these were in our recommendations that, you know, we put forward to your point in the absence of a comprehensive federal plan. And it's been exciting to see the success. I think roughly 60 of our recommendations so far have been adopted or acted upon and we're working for more of them. And, you know, one of the other things that we saw is we need to actually put out a plan for renewal and onshoring. And so we we put forward those things and we will continue to put forward. And so far, you know, like I said, the previous and I think incoming administrations are both serious in at least what they say about building and strengthening. And we're going to continue to partner and hold folks accountable to make sure that that is really the direction that we go and what we get because manufacturers deserve that and Americans deserve that. And we're going to keep our promises and hold policymakers responsible for the things that they do and the things that they don't do. Yeah. Great. Well, that's great news. That gives me some encouragement thinking that we're on the right path to consider these critical things to manufacturers going forward. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today. It was fascinating. Uh, Can you please give us your contact information? Sure. So my email is pretty easy. Again, my name is Rachel Jones. And so my email is just rjones, A-O-N-E-S, at NAM.org. So the easiest way to reach me, shoot me an email. I'm a very wealthy woman as it relates to email traffic. So (laughs) if you reach out to me and you haven't heard back, don't be bashful. Send me a follow up, but always an open door policy. Really enjoy getting to work with you, Rosemary, and thanks for having me today. Anyone is certainly free to reach out to me. And I love getting to hear, I think my favorite thing is to hear the stories of manufacturers and to hear what they make and how they make it. I just really love that. So please, please reach out to me. And I always want to have a conversation. So thank you, Rosemary, for letting me be a part of your conversation today. Ah, and thank you. You can listen to more podcasts on Women in Manufacturing website. It's www women, W-O-M-E-N-A-N-D, 
mfg.com, womenandmfg.com. And you can reach me, Rosemary Coates, at rcoates at reshoringinstitute.org. And visit our website at www.reshoringinstitute.org, where we publish all of our research on manufacturing in America. Thank you for joining the WAM podcast, where women empower other women in business and manufacturing. For more shows like this, go to whampodcast.com. That's whampodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.